Hello, my friends and thought evolutionists. What is going on? I'm your host, Stéphane Dubier, and this is Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. Now, what are you doing this summer? Have you planned to go on a trip? Perhaps somewhere exotic, where you can let the mind wander, maybe an adventure getaway, or a city tour in the footsteps of the world's greatest explorers. No matter where you go, traveling can be so much fun, and it is most certainly one of my favorite things to do. For my guest today, traveling is much more than just that. It's a huge part of his job, and there were times in his life when getting away seemed like the only viable solution. Meet Don. He's 54, a New York transplant from Utica, now living in South Carolina together with his loyal four-legged baby Maki. Don works as a flight attendant for a big Atlanta-based commercial airline and gets to accompany people from around the world as they embark on oh so many journeys. While doing so, it just so happens that he also gets to visit some of the most amazing places on earth for a living. It might be France today, Ghana tomorrow, Brazil three days from now, Japan next week. As glamorous and alluring as the life of a flight attendant may seem to the unknowing eye, this life often comes at great personal cost. Don will talk to us about that. We will also discuss moments in his life that almost completely destroyed him before those very same moments finally allowed him to learn true self-love and acceptance. Although he would always help a stranger and give the shirt off his back to anyone in need, there lie some really dark times behind him, when he felt very much alone, lost, and in despair. Times when he fought for a loveless marriage that left him penniless and broken. Times when self-doubt almost got the best of him. Don is gay, and while it is something he doesn't necessarily lead with when introducing himself, it is an important part of his identity. One that takes many people out there a long time to process and accept for themselves. I'm so happy to see that Don is all smiles today and that positivity and optimism prevail. The past is just that. It's past, over, gone, and lived. Overcoming difficulties, even those that appear to trip us and make us stumble time and time again, is one of the greatest testaments to the human condition of resilience. I hope you can find comfort, encouragement, and inspiration in today's story, told by somebody who had to learn that it takes wings to fly, and that growing those wings can be very painful, but boy is it worth it. Please welcome this soaring eagle named Dawn. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about abuse. If this subject is a trigger to you, Please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Thank you so much for being here with us, Don, for taking the time out of your busy work schedule to talk to me. I really appreciate it. So where did you last travel to and where are you off to next? I just came in from um, Ghana a couple of days ago. Um, I do a lot of work there with um, a children's school. I'm trying to uh, count my blessings and pay it forward now. So I have a little boy there that I sponsor for school. And there's a group of us that help contribute to the school with supplies and teaching and um, reading to the students and teaching them math and spelling and reading. So it's a, it's been a really great experience for me to be able to feel like I can now give back a little bit 
kind of count my blessings for what I have and kind of pay it forward. So it's a really, I don't want to say a pretty place, but it's a pretty place for me. The children and the, the people in the school, the directors, that I see how hard they work with so little that they have, um, it's inspiring. So it makes me want to just keep going and continue to, to help uh, their work. And uh, next trip is London. Wow, it's amazing you're doing that. Now, does it ever get tiring being a flight attendant? What would you say are the pros and cons of the job? And if you had to pick any other job, what would it be? Uh, yes, to say the least, it can definitely be tiring. I think this job is one of those in which it's what you make it. It can be very lonely or very fulfilling. And so I think it depends on the individual themselves. I've always been an adventurer, so exhaustion is part of my daily routine. So uh, yes, it's not always easy. People are not always easy. Um, but I'm always looking at the finish line. You know, what do I have at the end of the at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month? I feel uh, this job isn't what I had set my sights on. This isn't what I thought I would do. I was a hospitality major, but flying was never part of my plan. However, it has turned out to be the best plan for me. Sometimes the things you least expect turn out to be the best things. The job itself. Um, for me, uh, is a way for me to uh, escape the the monotony of the nine to five, because this is absolute opposite of a nine to five. And so I've never really found it to be that exhausting or for some people it can be lonely, you know, years of missed holidays and weekends and being away from home. And people think that we're gone for days and days on end. And maybe some days that is the case. I have never, maybe this is just me being me, um, I've never really felt lonely away. I think because I'm such a socialite, so I work. A, I can work a room, I can work a plane, I can work a, you know, a restaurant, whatever. Um, so I love people. And so I'm intrigued by people and their stories and um, culture and diversity. And this job has made me such a much better person for having done it. It, it, no, it's not always easy, but it has really uh, enriched me beyond uh, what I could have ever done had I done anything else. Would I have wanted to do anything else now? Now that I look back on it, probably not. The career choices that were leading me into different directions probably would not have been as fulfilling to me as this job. I think people sometimes think of, of us as just people who uh, serve you food and do a little demo dance, you know, for you here and there. But our job really goes way beyond, um, it goes way beyond that. Um, we connect with people. Sometimes we play, we may, we wear lots of hats. So someday I might be someone's social worker. Sometimes I might be your EMT. Sometimes you know, we take care of people when they're sick or when they've lost a loved one, or we never know what someone's story is when they pass that threshold. So this job is so, so, so much more than what, what the eye sees from the general public. And um, so for, for me personally, I feel so blessed that I was chosen. This, this career path was actually kind of chosen for me, really. And I could have, I could have changed it. I could have made some changes, but you get to a turning point 
where there's like this point of no return, you know, and you're like. So then what made you become a flight attendant and how did you end up working for that large Atlanta-based airline that we shall not mention, flying across the world for a living? I worked for uh, reservations for another major airline before I became a flight attendant. Uh, I was not a very good flyer, so I wanted to travel, but flying was not big on my list. Uh, I was one of those fearful, kind of never got out of my seat uh, sort of passengers. And so I decided one day, uh, my friend and I, we were looking at the Boston Globe. I was living in upstate New York, and I worked for a an airline that had a reservation center close to where I lived. So we were looking in the paper one day and we decided to fly to Boston and in this big ad in the newspaper that this small regional carrier of the major carriers was hiring. And she's the one that really pressed me to apply for this job. I wasn't going to do it. I was like, you know how I am, you know how I am with the bumps, you know, how I don't know if I can do this. She's like, you have to do this. This is like the universe talking to you. So I... I said, okay, I'm going to apply because you, you don't have to take the job if you don't want to, but at least go for the interview and see what they say. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll apply. So I applied. I went to the interview like two weeks later. The interviewers were like the director of flight attendants and HR, and they said, you're a perfect fit for this job. And then I could feel the blood rush from my face, and I thought, I'm going to kill her. <laughs> Now what do I do? What do I do with all this? And so I... Uh, graciously accepted the job and then thought I could always have buyer's remorse later. But I thought, let me just accept it and I'll go home and I will figure it out. And so that's what I did. I went home. I gave my two weeks notice. I was barely two weeks notice. My family looked at me like I had three heads and said, uh, are you going to be able to do this? So... I said, I think so. I'm going to try it. And sure enough, the first two years were a little rough. And then I applied, started applying to the major airlines and got hired with the Atlanta-based uh, carrier. And that was that. And it's 27 years later and here I am. Who would have thought? What have been some of your favorite places to fly to? Any destinations you did not like? Are there any countries you have not been to yet and would love to travel to? Some of my most favorite places to visit are Venice. Um, the the, the uh, oldness of the city, if you want to call it the island, it's magical to me. I love photography, so for me, it's a playground of, of wonder. Um, Istanbul, very, very interesting, very nice people. It's, uh, I have learned a little bit of this and that from them being a, an Italian Catholic. So I find it fascinating the way they pray, the way they eat their hospitality towards foreigners are amazing. I have a lot of Turkish friends. I love everything about it. I have yet to go to Australia and New Zealand. Those are big, big on my list. I hear they're f phenomenal. Uh, the West, the West Coast, uh, Pacific uh, Islander Islands, Tahiti, where, where I've always wanted to see that. I've not explored a lot of Asia, so I'd like to 
maybe get my feet in a little bit, a little bit there. Um, I love India. Um, India is amazing. And I, I do have a trip planned there this year, a real trip, a long, long trip. So I'm very excited to explore everything that has, has to do with the Taj Mahal and uh, big in my bucket, bucket list. So I'm very excited uh, about, about visiting uh, places that have rich in history that I can document with my camera and my memories. I'm going to start a little book, I think. I think I'm going to write a little, uh, like a coffee table book on my travels. So that's on the horizon, I believe, coming up. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But travel is, for me, uh, opens up a whole new it's a whole new world people that never or may never have opportunity to experience culture food and people in the different walks of life i think people don't understand we don't necessarily always understand why people react or interact the way they do because we don't understand their culture we don't understand the way that our way isn't necessarily always the right way i think in this country, we live in a bit of a bubble. We, some want to feel like people should conform because English is the common denominator. I've always made it a, a, a I've always made it a, an opportunity for me to learn a little bit of this and that. Please and thank you can be learned in any language. And if that's all I learn, at least I've learned something. And were there any places you did not enjoy visiting at all? There are places that I wanted to enjoy, but there are places that as much as you want to enjoy and as much as you'd like to explore, there are places that you really have to be careful. Um, I know given the current state of affairs, Russia, uh, I have spent uh, many layovers there in Moscow. And although the people have always been lovely It's a feeling of being watched everywhere. Um, every, every, where you go, you feel like the eyes are on you because they probably are. I was walking down the street with a friend of mine speaking very softly. We don't talk very loud there, especially Russian's not a common language. And we were just walking down the street. I had bought some CDs from a vendor and we were just walking back from Red Square and this policeman walked literally right in front of me until I walked straight into his chest and just looked down at me and was like, passport. There is one of those countries where you must carry your passport with you everywhere, uh, with your visa. They want to know that you're there legitimately. And um, it was one of those scenarios that really was a very eye-opener for me for the first time in my like traveling career that not everyone is welcoming, not everybody wants us there. And I couldn't really make of what he was trying to do exactly, except maybe target me, because I didn't look like the norm. And he, he flipped every page of my passport, looked at every stamp, and just kept me standing there cold stone. I didn't know what to do, I didn't know where to look, I didn't know what to say. And 15 minutes and he gave me my passport back and I could not have set off running fast enough. So 
I'm not really sure if he was trying to scare me, if he was just doing his job, or maybe my idea of what I thought was happening may not have been, but it was a little scary. And so at that point, it was one of those places where I was like, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, Russia definitely isn't far up on my list of places I'm planning to visit anytime soon. Now, are there any secrets or tips you can share that every traveler should know? As far as the airplane goes, it's really, really important. Two things that you stretch, you get up, you walk around, that you drink uh, lots of water, stay dehydrated. A lot of our diversions and medical emergencies happen from people who haven't eaten properly, haven't drank enough water, haven't they get dehydrated, they pass out, they don't realize what's happening, they think they're sick and they're really not, they're just dehydrated. So lots of lots of fluids, um, try to rest, uh, stay away from Ambien, please. Ambien, is, Ambien and wine are bad news at 35,000 feet, <laughs> take it from me. I have seen uh, plenty of diversions, medical emergencies from Ambien and, and wine. So that's a no-no, take some Benadryl if you must, but stay away from the uh, from the prescription stuff. Uh, fluids, uh, movement, definitely eat, eat properly. Try to get rest. When you get to where you're going, to try to stay in your body clock, depending on which direction you're going, maybe a three-hour nap just to shake off the loose ends of the flight and then try to stay up till bedtime and get on a normal a normal schedule from there. Otherwise, it, it could mess your body clock up for, for days. If, like I said, depends on which direction, east or west, it's going to depend on how you feel when you arrive. Sometimes you don't feel the same going one direction than you do the other. So you just have to listen to your body. Now, how about some words of advice or encouragement for that nervous or first-time flyer, anyone out there biting their fingernails right now, being fearful of that next time or that very first time they have to set foot on a plane? I was one of those flyers. I was one of those people that refused to not travel, but was a nervous wreck from the minute I crossed the threshold till the minute the wheels landed. I think it's fear of the unknown and lack of control. People get nervous because they have no control. When bumps happen, when turbulence happen, they have no control. When we're driving, we have control. When someone else is driving, we have no control. I think a lot of the, of the, issues that people have when they're fearful flyers is that they, they have no control over what's happening around them. And that is what, that is what makes them nervous. I think it's, it's like, I, I explained to people having been one of those people that it's like driving in a car and going over bumps in a road, ripples in the air happen like bumps in the road happen. It's really nothing to be fearful of and nothing to be scared of. It's just air. It's air shifting in different directions. And that's what But the majority of the people are fearful because they have no control. They have no control over the situation. So that's what makes them, that's what scares them. It's really interesting because to me, it's the complete opposite, actually. I love getting on a plane and handing over that control for just a few hours and not being in charge and not having to think about anything. I'm also a big fan of public transportation. If I did not have to drive a vehicle another day in my life, I would be completely fine. As long as there's a good bus or tram or subway network. <laughs> If you had to guess, how many miles have you flown in your lifetime? So at the end of every year, our system calculates how many segments we've flown per year. Uh, this year, this past year, in 2022, I flew... 
436,000 plus miles to 18 countries. And I flew about 120 segments for the entire year. That's kind of a lot. So if you multiply maybe something close to that times 27 years, that's millions and millions and millions of miles. So it's kind of fascinating when you see it on paper. That is wild. Now, what advice would you give somebody listening right now who might be contemplating a career as a flight attendant? A few things. It's very important to know that your life will not be yours for a little while. We all have to start somewhere. Everyone starts at the bottom and you work your way up. I think the key is to keep your eye on the prize. The longer you do it, the better it gets. It's like a fine wine. The longer it sits, the better it tastes. You know, not every trip is good. Nobody wants to get up at 4 a.m. and fly four segments a day and with a 10-hour layovers, but we've all done it. But but along with those with those types of trips, there are also, then you have Paris and Rome and Venice and London and all these amazing places, Sydney and, and, and Papiete. You know, we have all these great, great layovers. So I think if you're an adventurer, you love to travel, you love, we always joke, we say one of the big questions is, you know, do you love people? Are you good working with people? And we always say, oh yes, and I'll work every holiday and I'll work every weekend until you're 10 years in and you're still working weekends and you're still working holidays. But like I said, it's what you make it. It's what you make of it. And there are a lot of these countries, especially on holidays, who don't celebrate Thanksgiving or Halloween. And they'll throw Thanksgiving dinners for us in Frankfurt or Stuttgart or Munich or Paris. They don't celebrate those holidays, but those hotels will know that we're away from home and they will provide those meals for us as a like a sentiment to us. You know, and it, it really makes you feel like our cultures are colliding you know, we're merging. So yes, you will spend holidays away from home. You will spend weekends away from home and you will FaceTime on Christmas and you will FaceTime on Easter and you'll do all these things. But at the end of the day, think about it. You know, you're in Paris for Christmas or Rome for Thanksgiving or, or, or wherever, you know, wherever you choose to be or wherever scheduling chooses for you to be that day. But the beauty of it is if you choose to, you can make it really great or you can make it really sad. And it's not easy for some people. For me, it's easy. It's always been easy. I've never really felt, maybe I'm a rarity, but I've never really felt lonely at this job. Yes, I've missed my family on Christmas. Yes, I've missed my family on holidays. And maybe I've missed a wedding or an event on a holiday on a weekend. But overall, I've never really felt lonely because at the end of the day, I could bring them with me if I wanted to. So not everybody has the same story to tell. And it can be a very lonely job, but it doesn't have to be a lonely job. Our work friends become our work families, and that's the difference. You told me earlier that Poland has a very special place in your heart. How come? I was on a layover in Warsaw oh, many years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and I met this really great guy, really, really nice. He was actually a friend that I went to college with, that I went to university with, actually took a job over in Warsaw for two years, uh, for his work. So I have been fly over and um, visit and met a colleague of his and we became friends and then we started to date and then that turned into 16 years later. And that is when I really, really started to really appreciate the differences in culture. I had never lived in a foreign country. I mean, I had traveled, yes, but I had never lived 
even part-time in a foreign country, and especially in a country where the language was nearly impossible to learn. And back then, English wasn't very well spoken. If you didn't learn it in school, um, I had Google Translate. Even back then, I had a translator. I learned some things. I tried to learn the basics. But I was determined I was going to make it work. Poland is a beautiful country with lovely people. We are actually still friends till this day. Uh, we, uh, he, he was. I was fortunate enough to to see the entirety of the country over the course of those sixteen years, and it was an amazing experience. Anyone who has an opportunity, even for two or three months, to be able to live and immerse yourself into a culture that you're not familiar with could be the most exhilarating experience of all. It, it was a little scary at times because Polish isn't like learning French or German or Spanish. It, it It's a real Slavic languages are, are very hard. And so I, it took me a lot of practice to learn just the basics. I did, I did learn some stuff. I did, I do remember some things, but the, the fact that the people never chastised me for trying, that's the key. They knew that I was trying. They knew their language wasn't easy to learn for foreigners, but yet I was determined I was going to speak something to somebody every day. And so it was fantastic. And so it, it, anyone who has an opportunity like that should jump on it in a minute, even even if only for a month or two, um, you, you will not regret it. It'll, it it's life-changing. Life-changing indeed. I can most certainly relate to that personally. <laughs> Now... Can you say something in Polish in case we have some Polish listeners? And would you do it again now at an older age, moving to a foreign country? Could you see yourself doing that a second time? Sure, I remember some things. Katura godzina. What time is it? Yakshimash. How are you? Jindori. Good day. So yeah, I've I've learned some things. Uh, I could I carry in a conversation? No, but I remember the the fragments of some things that enough to make people smile. Um, And yes, if I had an opportunity to do it again, I would in a minute. I think uh, it, I, at this point, as I'm, even though I'm f pretty far from retirement still, I think once I get close to that, I think that I would love to spend like summers in Italy, Tuscany, l learning learning Italian. That's my my nationality. So by um, my nature, my language that they, they never really spoke to us as children. So I didn't really learn much of it, but I would love to go and spend two or three months in a little villa or in Tuscany, just learning Italian from a little guy down the street, who knows, and go into the market and buying fruit. I, I would, I would 100% do it again. I, I think it's, it, those are life experiences that you can't buy. Those are things that you can't You can document in your brain and you can document in photos, but the it, the feeling of that experience is something that you always, always stays with you. I think everyone that has an opportunity or, or an, the ability to do it at least once should. I would do it again in a minute. Let me be your pilot for a second and let's take a time machine instead of a plane because it's 2023, so why not? <laughs> How was life growing up? You mentioned to me earlier that you're gay. Was it tough being gay in New York during that time? And was it hard trying to fit in? I grew up with my Catholic Italian grandparents. So that question was a, is a little tough because my family was very 
my family's amazing. I don't know how else to say it. That's really the, the one word I could describe to them as amazing. My grandparents were very, very special and I was an only child. So as I got older and I started to come into my sexuality and I started to realize, okay, well, this is probably me. Um, I had some worries. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in the seventies and the eighties. And, and so back then, you know, it was, I don't want to say necessarily taboo, but it was not really talked about and not really looked, you know, fairly upon, we'll say for lack of a better phrase. So I always kept it to myself for a long time through high school. It was when I went away to college, I really started to become myself because I was for the first time away from home, far enough away, you know, where I couldn't get caught. Not that I was ever doing anything I shouldn't be doing, but the bottom line is that um, you never know who was going to see you. Was a relative going to see me with somebody out or, you know, so it wasn't until... I was 26 that I really, I really started coming to myself and decided I was going to talk to my family about it. So what I will preface is that I had a cousin who married a black guy way back in the seventies when that was unheard of, even in New York. And, um, she didn't care. She loved him and they have amazing family and their children are beautiful. Um, and they grew up to be all one more successful than the next. And so I was reading a book. This is how it started. I was reading a book and I took, and I was, I would read it while I was flying on my trips, but I took the cover off. It was called the culture of desire. And it was just about a paradox of stories of, of guys growing up um, in the seventies and eighties and what it was like for them and what their journeys were like. And I thought if I read this book, maybe it would help me talk to my family about it, you know? So I took the cover off, put it on my bed, threw, threw some mail on top of it and, didn't think twice about it after. It was just a white hardcover book. So I, I came home. I would come home in between trips, and I, I came home one day, and my grandmother, God love her, she was, always had the sheets clean. The bed was always made. My full, clothes were always folded, and she always had everything just so. But I noticed she had moved the pile from the bed to the desk, and I thought to myself, oh, no, I'll bet you she saw the cover to that book, and now what do I do? And so I didn't sleep. I didn't say anything about it. She never mentioned a word to, about it. And I went to bed that night and didn't sleep at all. My mind was spinning. I thought, oh, no, there's no way she could have moved that pile and not seen that cover of that book. So next morning, I hear this knock on the door. And uh, my grandmother was like, hey, when you got a second, I want to ask you, I want to talk to you about some stuff. And I'm like, okay. And I knew, my gut knew that conversation was coming. And so it was either, if it was, I told myself, if this is the conversation, this is, she's giving you an opportunity now. So it's either now or forever hold your peace. Like it's either now or never. So she sat me down and she said, I have a question. And I said, yeah. And she said, and her very sweet, very grandma way, are you a homosexual? <laughs> and I, I had to laugh for a second because it was just, that's a word we don't really use. I know, I, we know it exists, but no one really says it, I don't think. And so um, I looked at her and my all the blood from my face rushed to white. And I could feel the tears start to well. And she looked at me and without even shaking a stick said, it's okay, honey. It's okay. And she hugged me and I cried for two hours. 
grandfather came home and I was terrified of that. And, you know, I, I was just to quickly preference, I went to live with my grandparents because I have a very abusive dad. So they took me out of a very abusive home. And so everything scared me. Everything frightened me. You know, the fear of abandonment was terrifying to me. And so I thought if I, if I really, even as a 26 year old, I thought, what if they, what if they leave me? What if they don't want me here anymore? What if they, you don't know, it sounds crazy, but it's happened. I know people personally that has happened to, and I was so terrified that I was going to lose my family over it that I just didn't know what to do. And so all I could do was cry. I couldn't even speak. I couldn't even speak for like two hours. It was awful. But my grandfather came home and, um, my grandmother said, we had the talk, and yes, it's true. And my grandfather sat down next to me, and he looked at me, and he looked at her, and he said, well, he's our child, so we're going to take care of him. It doesn't matter. What do you say to that? And then I cried even more, because then I was like this big relief, you know. And that was in a generation where, you know, they just didn't understand you know, how I didn't even know if I understood. I don't even, I didn't even know why it was happening to me. You know, I would go to church and I'd try to pray it away. And I, I would say to my prayers and I, if this isn't right, please make it go away. Like, I don't know what to do with myself. I was losing my mind slowly. You know, and this on top of it, when you come from such a tight family, the fear of losing them is, is debilitating. And so, I um I decided that it was it, it, I was just going to have to tell them if I was ever going to be able to be me, you know. And um it f- gratefully it worked out in my favor. Thank goodness. My family has shrunk over the years, but the core that's left is incredibly um supportive of everything I have ever done. And I'll always be grateful to them for that. Do you think that your grandparents giving you that quote-unquote embrace in that situation, that very tough and difficult situation for you as a young boy, helped kick off your journey to true self-love and self-acceptance? I think it it definitely helped. Um, I know that they struggled with it in private. You know, they never said it. But I knew in my heart that they were struggling to accept it. And they, but they, they knew, I think they saw the struggle in my own face. So I think on both sides, it, we kind of helped each other. Uh, I, I believe that they could see that I, I didn't really understand what was happening as I blatantly was like, you know, I don't do anything different than I ever have. I don't know what creates this. I don't know what, you know, was, I was young. I didn't know, you know, nobody knows what makes a person gay. You know, is it a, is it a gene? Is it too much of one to not enough of another? Nobody really knows, really. I don't even think today we even really know. All I know is that it is, it was, you know, and they, they did everything they could to make me feel good about who I was. And that helped me be able to like progress forward. It was me in my own mind trying to figure out why more than it was their acceptance of it or lack thereof. So I was trying to figure out for myself why me, what was the difference between me and my grandfather, me and my uncle, me and my cousins. And I, as far as I know of, I'm the only gay one in the family. So 
what was it about me? Now, my father, on the, on the flip side, who I had no relationship with, um, he was a twin, and his brother was gay. It's the only one I know of in my family. Um, I don't, I don't, I never knew that part of, of my family. So um, I didn't know anything about, I don't know till this day anything about his family. I only knew my mom's side of the family. So I was grateful that I was able to be able to kind of learn on my own. And I went away to college on purpose. I went away to school for a reason so that I could try and find myself in my own space, in my own time without not, no one ever followed me around it, but I, you know, when you come from a a small, small little town, regardless of whether or not you want your privacy, that's not always the case. Small is small. People are everywhere. People, people, someone's going to see you. Someone's always going to see you somewhere with somebody in a restaurant and a bar or whatever, you know? So it was, yeah, it, it helped me. Their acceptance of it helped me. Um, even though I knew that they struggled in private, and I was one of those people that I never, I never brought, I never brought people home. Um, only one person, and he was the Polish guy, and he was the one I was with for 16 years. It was the only guy I had ever brought home to meet my family. I was very protective of my grandparents and their feelings and their space in their house. You know, I grew up very, you know, when you're as an only child, you learn to share everything. Your friends become your siblings your close friends become your siblings because you don't have anybody else. So until my cousins were born and they're twins, and then they became my, my little sisters, you know, our, our mothers are, we're first cousins and our mothers are sisters. So I was very protective of them and we became like siblings by assimilation, you know, but really I'm an only child. So it, it, it was just one of those things that you were fearful that you were going to lose everything. You had no brother or sister to back you up. And it was either live a lie or, or, or fess up. And it wasn't, it wasn't worth the stress to continue the lie. It's 2023. So today being a member of the LGBTQ community is a lot more accepted in the public, in the media, Although recent FBI data shows that anti-LGBTQ hate crimes have been rising for multiple years in a row now. Why do you think there is still so much hate towards the LGBTQ community? Having had this job for so long and having traveled around the world for so long, I think hate to me personally is a symbol of ignorance. It's a symbol of lack of knowledge Um, and lack of tolerance. You know, people are people are people. We, everybody is born the same, with the same blood. We bleed the same. We, you know, we laugh the same. You know, we may be different culturally, maybe different color-wise. We may be attracted to different sexes, but to hate someone based on something that you never see, to me, has always blown my mind. I think it's because I grew up in a household, even back then, my grandparents always told me, it doesn't matter what color anyone's skin is. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter if they're skinny or fat. Everybody, everybody gets respected. In a time where they were still, we were coming out of the whole segregation of black and white and all this stuff. My grandparents never saw color. 
they made sure that I never saw color or never chastised anybody for it. So there are still areas of this country that I wouldn't go to. There, there, are, there are cities and states, cities in states that I would never, as a gay guy, want to be caught dead in, even, even during the day. If they had any inkling that I was gay, I would be fearful. And that's sad. Because we're going into, you know, the 21st, we're, we're in the 21st century now, and we're still, I feel like going backwards. It's like we're regressing back to the 1960s when, you know, blacks and whites couldn't sit in certain, certain, um, certain um, um, areas of the bus, couldn't sit in parts of the restaurant, could only drink out of this fountain, could only go here, could only go there. But what is happening? The world is falling apart, and, and we don't really have any good reason for it to be. You know, so the the hate is to me is just a lack of knowledge and a lack of tolerance and a lack of, of just trying to understand. I've never, I've always appreciated gay prides and the, 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 the reasoning behind them. I'm not a bit, I've never been a big partier. I've never been a big bar person. I've never been a big, you know, yes, I, I, I'm proud of who I am and I'm, I'm, proud of the person I become and the man I become. And, but I, I've not, I'm not a big flag waver. Is that, is that without sounding offensive to anyone? I, it doesn't matter to me who is. I, I personally, I love the pride events, but I don't know the last time I, I was able to go to one. And so I think they're great. And I think, I think they're fun and, and and I think it's a it's a it's a, a celebration of who we are and I think it's important. I I just have never been that person, you know, to run around the streets in a rainbow thong. You know, that's just you know, and I'm trying to be funny. Those things are fun and I'm not knocking it by any means and I'm not I'm not by any means putting it down in any way, shape, or form. Um, because it could be a, it really they really are a lot of fun. I just wonder how I wonder how sometimes the outside world perceives those those events. You know, uh, I I just think that the world needs to be a whole lot more tolerant of people. It doesn't matter if you're a guy that wants to be a girl, or a girl that wants to be a guy. You feel I I don't know what it's like to feel like I've been born in the wrong body. So I feel for those who do, because why shouldn't you be happy in your own skin? Why shouldn't you be able to be the person you feel you should be? There's there's no reason why anyone should be intolerant of any of that. And and, and even if I wasn't gay, I, I was still brought up with the mindset that people are people. It doesn't matter what they look like. So I, I'm grateful that that I am who I am. I just wish that the more more of the world could actually see that what people actually bring to the table. You know, it, it doesn't matter what your sexuality is. It's it's your mind. It's your compassion. It's how you treat people. It's how you pay it forward. It's what you do. You know how you live your life. It's not about whether or not you want to wear a pair of pants or a dress or a skirt or whether or not your hair is purple or or green or blue or you have a mohawk. Who cares? Nobody cares. You know, but people care for some reason about this stuff. I don't understand it. So, have you ever been bullied for being gay? And what would you say to somebody if you had the opportunity right now to talk to a person who does not understand what it's like to be gay or who may even feel hatred towards you simply for who you happen to be attracted to? 
I gratefully have never been a victim of that. Thank goodness. Um, I think that people who don't understand then need to put themselves in a position to attempt to understand. So if you don't understand what my day to day is like, love is love. Like there is no gender or sexuality when it comes to love or respect or any of those things. So my day to day, a gay person's day to day is no different than any other heterosexual's day to day. I get up in the morning, I brush my teeth, I tie my shoes, I go to work, I pay my taxes, I have a house, I drive a car, I do everything that everybody else does in the same exact way. The only thing that they don't see is what happens behind closed doors when it does happen. So I, I guess maybe I have a hard time with people who are intolerant of things that they just merely don't see. You know, it, I, nothing about gay life is really that much different than, than, than a heterosexual day-to-day. It's the same thing. We all do the same things the same way. We just love different. And, and so for me, I have a hard time trying to understand why this is such a hard thing for people at this, at this stage. What would be your message to a kid out there knowing deep down right now that they're gay, probably feeling scared, vulnerable, alone, What would you tell that kid right now? There are resources and people that can help you. There are community outreach, outreach programs. There are homes that will help people who have been uh, young men and women who have been displaced from their homes because their families cast them aside. The, the thing is that you should never feel like you have to be somebody else for somebody else. You are you. You were born you, you were born you for a reason, and no one should be able to change the core of who you are based on your sexuality. You know, I'm an open book now. I, I don't care who knows what. I don't go around advertising it, but I don't lie about it either. I'm 54 years old. At this point, it doesn't matter to me. I have My friendships are established. My relationships are established. Yeah, I'm always up for making new friends. But if you're not going to like me because of something like that, then so be it. But as far as the young kids now, I think that the older generation, even before me, they paved a long road for us. They, they fought a lot of battles to get us to where we are today. Uh, though, and a lot of those people lost their lives early. And so I think if we we need to help We need to volunteer. We need to open our homes, open our hearts up to these kids who really don't know what to do. I was that kid. I was that kid. I just was fortunate enough to have a family who understood or tried to understand. So there, there are so many programs in so many places that can help that before they think that there is no hope, I hope, I would hope that they would do their research and find a community outreach to really, really be able to point them in the right direction. There was that marriage of yours I had mentioned earlier. Would you like to talk about it? I know from your retelling of the story that it left quite some scars, not to mention a pile of debt you are still paying off now. How did your love story end up becoming a complete nightmare? Lo love is a very strong word, just like just like the word hate. It's a very powerful word. 
I married a guy who I loved, I genuinely did love, and I do believe to some degree loved me back. He was bipolar and unfortunately didn't take care of himself the way he needed to. And so four months after we were married, he had some surgery. They introduced some pain medication, interacted with his bipolar meds that that were supposed to keep him stable. So they, they, they were very careful about what they gave him, but nevertheless, sometimes there has to be some adjustments made. The short of it is that he decided he knew better than the doctors um, and stopped taking his medication and over the course of time became, for lack of a better word, the devil. He became not himself. He was very uh, verbally abusive. He was mean and nasty and miserable. He was unhappy with everything, hated his life. Nothing I did was good enough. Nothing I did was right. I didn't vote for the right person. I didn't cook the right food. I'd, you know, and I was a one-man show, so he didn't work at the time, so I was... I was the chef, I was the chauffeur, I was the gardener. I was, you know, the the, you know, uh, taking him to all his appointments and you know, I was more of an errand boy than I was uh an equal partner in this marriage. And so being me, being me doing me, I stuck it out for as long as I could thinking, okay, this is the best for better for worse part. This is in this is what, you know, it's not always going to be happy. It's not always going to be fun and glorious. It, it sometimes things happen and this is where the true test comes. So I stuck it out. I st- stuck through the name calling and the, in f- the, you know, the punch throwing and all that stuff until he tried to really hurt me one day. And I just, something in my head said, you just can't, you can't allow this to happen. And so um, it turned into a little bit of a of an altercation. Uh, we sorted it. Um, I was away for work on a trip uh, for training, and while I was away, he trashed the house, had a, some type of mental break, trashed the house, and crashed his car into neighbor street head on, and um, he nearly killed himself and the dog. And it was a very bad vet very bad scenario. So all this given, I I stuck it out for five years. I I was heartbroken to some degree. I I feel like I had failed somehow. Uh, What could I have done different? What could I have done better? I tried to fly him around the country to different doctors to help him. Went through all this debt. I wasn't even working enough to barely pay my bills because he required so much of my time, which is where the debt came in. And you know, medical bills were piling, and I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I, I had no choice but to file for a divorce. I, c- I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it anymore. It, I did everything I could to try and help, but you you can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped. If they don't want to help themselves, and not, no, it doesn't matter what you want or what I want or what anybody wants. If they don't want the help, it doesn't matter what you want. And I, I had to learn that the hard way, and it, I probably let it go on a little bit longer than I should have, but I loved him and I wanted to see him get better and I wanted him to be better. And so, you know, it was, you're ugly, you're fat. I don't know why you, I've never been fat a day in my life, but he was anything he could say to to throw a dagger, you know, he did. And so I finally decided one day that 
I deserve better than that. And uh, if he wasn't going to help himself, then it didn't matter what I wanted in it. And I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to subject myself um, or the dog for that matter to any more of this, you know, this ridicule. And so I filed for divorce. I, I you know, I, um, it was, a, took a year because he was in the hospital every couple months again, um, losing his mind a little bit slowly, but it, it didn't have to be that way. He chose for it to be that way. And that's kind of sad. Um, but for anyone, you know, my friends were always like, please don't let this ruin you for their, you know, for the next guy there, there may be, you know, don't, don't let it tarnish your, your opinion of, of, of ever doing it again, because you deserve that. And I, and I knew that I deserved better and I, and I, I don't have any ill will towards him. I hope that he finds peace one day. Um, I, I just knew that I couldn't live trapped in that, in that anymore. It was just, um, unhe- very, very unhealthy. So that's my story. You know, he is um, still struggling. And a side note to this is that he is going to a church that's trying to help him de-gay himself, if that's even a word. So on top of all this, he was angry that uh, he didn't want to be gay anymore and God was going to punish him. And that was part of where when he started to make my life really, really, because we, we both grew up Catholic. I still go to church. I very much believe in God. Um, I don't believe that this is any way, shape or form of punishment, but he did. And he was determined um, to make life hell until um, I had given in to go to this church with him, which I refused to do. So he's still in that process, apparently until this day. And I, I wish him well, and I hope that he finds peace it just wasn't, um, it wasn't something I could continue. Now, in your intake form, you mention a homeless friend you had while living in New York. Would you like to tell our listeners a bit more about that? Yes. I was two and a half years, three years at my company and had taken a promotion to be a manager, operations um, HR manager. And so I was home every night. And one day I was coming home from a friend's apartment and there was this guy sitting on the steps next to my apartment building. And as I'm approaching, you know, New York is New York. People have blinders on and they don't, you know, they even think you're something. They're going to keep on walking. They're going to ignore you because that's New York City, right? So he was sitting on his steps and he had a tablet, a notebook, and he was writing and writing and writing. And he said, excuse me, sir, can I ask you a question? So I stopped and I was literally almost in front of my building and I looked around this guy, what does this guy want? You know, what is he asking? What's he going to ask me? And I said, yeah. So I said, all right, what's going on from a distance? You know, he's sitting on the steps. I'm on the sidewalk. And I said, what's going on? What can I do for you? He's like, listen, I'm trying to spell this word. Do you think you could help me? Can you help me with the uh, spelling of this word? And I said, I looked at him and I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I just, I want to make sure I'm spelling it right. And so I, I was like, oh, so all the walls came down. I'm like, oh, I go up, I go up the stairs. I sit next to him and I'm like, so what's going on? What is all this? He said, well, something, something happened at my work and my, my boss wanted me to write my account of what happened. And I don't think I'm spelling some of these words, right? Could you just, my, my spelling's not so great. Can you just check for me? And so I said, sure. Uh, no problem. So I gave him, so he gave me the notebook. I, I mean, I said, with his permission, may I make some fine tunes? And he said, Sure. So I said, well, when do you need this back by? He's like, oh, a couple of days. I said, well, 
why don't you let me take it to work? I'll type it all up. I'll leave a space for your name. Sign your name. We'll do it all nice. I'll put it in an envelope. And he says to me, why would you do that for me? And I said, why would you stop me on the sidewalk and ask me a question? I was a total stranger. So I could ask you the same question, right? And so he looked at me and we both started to laugh. And I said, well, it goes both ways, right? You didn't know me. I didn't know you. So it doesn't matter. He's like, okay. That kicked off two years of friendship with this guy. And come to find out he did have a job, but he just didn't make enough money to afford to live anywhere. And so he would sleep on the train at night or, and he would go to the Y and shower. He had a little locker and he'd go to the shower. He would go there, shower, wash up. And then he would meet me. He would wait for me to come home. He would sit on the subway wall and wait for me to come home at night. And we would go have lunch. I'd take him to dinner and we would, he would come with me to do laundry. I mean, we, and this guy just became my friend. And there were, there was never an, a minute or a, an ounce of judgment. Um, I let him tell me what he wanted to. I never poked into his business. I never asked him, uh, how did you, what, what, what happened? What's your story? I let him tell me as he got comfortable with me, you know, come to find out he was from Jamaica, came to the States. Things happen, broke up with his girlfriend. New York is a very, very unforgiving place to be homeless. It's a very uh, rough, very, um, it's a busy, it's expensive, it's cold in the winter, bitter cold in the winter and brutally hot in the summer. And there's just no happy medium for these poor people. And I will tell you, uh, and I told him, I said, you know, the, the city's really full of, it's a big facade, this city. It's a lot of fake, you know, not everybody that lives in this city is rich or wealthy or make a million dollars a year. I don't make a million dollars. I have four roommates, you know? And I said, so we only afford it here because we're in bunk beds. Okay. And I'm grateful for it. And I love my life and I'm good for now. For now it works. But don't think for one minute that I own anything or that I'm, you know, some big shot, you know, exec. But- I may not always have money to give you. He never, ever, ever asked me for money. But I did tell him, I, I will, as long as I, we're friends, you will never go hungry. So food and, and, and water and things like that are, for me, basic human necessity. And I said, I may not have, and if it's the last $5 in my pocket, we're going to get you a burger and something to drink. Like, you will never go hungry as long as we're friends. And so he, we just, he just... We just became this amazing, we established this amazing friendship, you know? And when I came back to fly, when I left the office and I came back to fly and I moved, sadly, that was when cell phones were just now becoming a thing. And and um, he didn't obviously didn't have a phone. There was no money for that. But, you know, I tell his story I have told this story this last year probably three times, maybe four times. So even though it's been 24 years, he still rings in my brain so often. And I hope that that's a good thing. I hope, and I always prayed for him, that something good, that maybe I in some way, maybe gave him some type of little boost in the right direction, because he was a really nice guy. He was a really, and you could tell he was trying. You can tell when people are just panhandling to panhandle. And then 
sometimes, and then you know when the people who are really, really trying them and the world's just against them, everything's just not going their way. And if I had had an, a flat of my own, apartment of my own, I probably would have brought him home and let him shower there and because that's just me. You know, but I had three female roommates that wouldn't have gone over well, but he was a sweet guy. And I, I really hope that maybe he rings in my brain because something good has happened to him and that he was able to get out of that, that rut. So, you know, he, he was very special and, and he taught me, I think far more, he gave me far more than I gave to him. I feel so here's to Joe. And perhaps Joe is listening, <laughs> or somebody who knows Joe. You never know. The world is turning more and more into this small little village, thanks to the magnificence of the internet. So if Joe's listening, or if you know who Joe is, check out www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. Get in touch with us. We will make sure to pass on the messages to Don. Now, moving on. One of the hobbies that you have that you mentioned is photography. You're very passionate about it, which I guess is the perfect kind of pastime for someone who travels as much as you do. There was a story you wanted to touch on about an exhibit of your work. Yeah, the photography, the photography started out with my grandmother. My grandmother didn't drive, so... When I was a child, she always had me creating, crafting, creating, painting, drawing, building things. So as I got older, I, de I somehow developed this this passion for photography. When she when she passed away, I needed an outlet, and photography became it. And so for a few years, I had been snapping pictures, and when money was tight, I would frame photos and make note cards and do those things. And, and I would give people, I would buy, I'd go to Venice and Rome and I would go to these special papery stores and I would buy homemade paper and I would wrap them all nice with bows. And I would, and it was just a part of me I was giving to someone else. So one day I was on a, I was on a project in Atlanta and I was at a, you know, having some drinks with some friends at a bar one night and this couple sitting next to me and we started talking and, but we We just back and forth, you know, just say, what do you do? What are you doing? Oh, we're, you know, I work for an airline. I'm here on assignment. And they said, uh, you know, well, what do you do? What do you like? So, you know, we just, just chitter chatter over beer, you know? And I said, oh, I know my, I love what I do, but, you know, photography is my thing. And they're like, oh, you love photography. Oh, we happen to um, own a um, gallery, two galleries um, in Stone Mountain. And I said, oh, really? And they were like, yeah, well, you should bring your portfolio sometime. Let us have a look. You know, I was like, Oh, okay. So we exchanged numbers. We became friends. I, we had a couple of dinners. I went home one weekend, brought my portfolio back, went to their house and they're like, wow, we really like this is some really good stuff. And I said, I, I don't proclaim myself as a photographer, maybe in my own head. I've never taken a class. I've never, I'm not professionally trained. I just know what looks good to my eyes. And so, um, they're like, yeah, but bring this to the house and let us have a look. And I said, okay. So they looked through all my photos. I had stuff on an online gallery and the actual physical portfolio. And I went home and the following weekend, I got a phone call and they're like, hey, we want to talk to you about, come over for dinner. And we want to talk to you about some stuff. Like, okay. So August, 
every August, the the photography students in one of the local colleges submit two pieces of work for their final exams. And they always uh, enlist a photographer to launch this big exhibit. So the photographer's works on the lower level of the gallery, and then there's the upper galleries where the, the students display all their work. So they said, we would like for you to be our photographer this year. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? What was that? You know, I was like, are you kidding me? Really? I'm like, you know that I'm not a full-on photographer. Like, we don't care. We love your work. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be a full-on photographer, but we love your stuff. I'm like, okay. So we went through the list. I chose 34 pictures, 34 photos that we both agreed on. Some they liked, some that I told them that that must be, there were some must-haves for me. And uh, they were like, that's fine. And uh, we chose 34. I gave it a title. It was called To See My World. And I had a huge, huge exhibit. I think till this day was probably the single most exciting day of my life. And that was more than probably 10 years ago now. I'm, I'm due for something now. But to see my name on a wall and my photos, and it was all pictures from my travel from South Africa to, to Cairo, to Hungary, to Paris. Like it was a worldwide global uh, exhibit and it was amazing. And, and something I will always be grateful to them for. Um, it was an experience that um, a lot of my photographer friends have, have never had. So I'm so, so, so grateful uh, for it. And where I am also still friends with them till this day. I haven't done much with the photography lately, but it's coming. It's coming soon. Something new is coming soon. Last but not least, tell us about two unforgettable guests you had the pleasure of being a flight attendant for. One in the most positive sense and one not so much. So negative, negative. Oh, there's so sadly so many negatives, but but they definitely don't outweigh the positives. So there was this woman we had one day. We we're coming from we we're coming from Frankfurt. And we we're going to JFK. And she got on board very, very abrupt, very cold. You know, you never know what kind of day someone's had before they get on board. So we, we, I just kind of let it roll. As long as they're not breaking any rules, uh, they don't have to be warm and fuzzy. It doesn't matter. So she gets on board and um, flight attendants are like, God, this, this, she's just so nasty. Like she doesn't like her seat. She doesn't want this. She doesn't want that. And so I was a service leader. So like, can you, you know, go talk to her, you know? So I went to talk to her and I said, listen, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know what kind of day you've had, but you got to kind of, you got to tone it down with the crew, you know, like whatever you got going on, if there's something we can do for you, great. But you can't be, you know, you can't be treating the crew like this. You can't be yelling at people. We're not, we're not going to have that today. So if there's something you need, you would like to discuss with me, that's great. I'm happy to sit with you, but we're not, this is not going to carry on for the next eight hours. It's not going to end well. So that being said, whatever. Oh, well, blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm not here to argue with you. I'm just here to tell you, this is how we're going to do it today. Okay. So we finished the service, flight attendants are like, man, she's just so nasty. 
And I said, well, what? I don't understand. Like, what's the problem? You know, she's like, I don't really know. No one really knows. She's just mean. So I went back up there. Something told me something wasn't right. So I said to her, I brought her a glass of wine. That's how it started. I set it on her table. And I said, are you sure you're good? And she looked at me for a minute. And I said, "It. you look like a really nice lady. I don't, no one can seem to figure out what's happened. And you, by all means, don't have to tell me anything. But what's going on? Is there something? This is what we do, right? This is what I do. Not everybody's like me. I knew that there was something not right. And so I was determined I was going to try to get to the bottom of it. So I said, if you want to talk about it, I'll be in the galley. Please feel free to come see me. I just, something tells me something's off here. And I just wanted to let you know that if you want to chat about it, by all means. So she starts to cry. And I'm like, I knew it. I knew something. I knew there was something, some underlying cause. And, and I said, what is going on? Like, what is wrong? How can I help? You know, she said, well, it, I'm sorry I've been so mad. You know, I'm sorry I've been so miserable. She said, I, I bought this really, really beautiful, very expensive bottle of wine and duty free. She was changing planes. For some reason, security wouldn't let her. Um, it was sealed in the back. I don't, I still can't till this day. I never could understand why they took it if it was sealed in the duty. Nevertheless, it was her. I want to say 30th or 40th anniversary and this special wine was going to be for their anniversary dinner. And she was, she was just so angry about it that I don't, she's like, I just don't understand. I said, you know, I don't either. And I'm so, so sorry, but why don't you give me a minute? You know, so I, I go, I leave her for a few minutes. I go to business class and I line all the red wines up on the counter and I'm like, all right, what one looks expensive? And I'm like, I'm looking, I'm looking them up, eyeballing them all. And I said to the crew, what's been the most popular bottle of wine tonight? Who's been, what are they drinking the most of today? Because that's the bottle of wine I'm going to give to my friend. And they were like, what are you talking about? I said, ah, this lady, she's having a day. I just, I want to give her, I need, I need to do something nice for her. So what are we, what, what, what's the best? So I chose the, the, the the most popular. I wrapped it up in in a white linen. I put a little, little wings on it, pin it together. And I said, I set it on our trade table and I said, listen, I can't replace your expensive bottle of wine. What I can do is send you home with a replacement. And she cried and she cried and she hugged me and she's like, I know I've been unbearable and I'm sorry. And I said, ah, you know, I knew in my gut something wasn't right. And I'm sorry this happened, but maybe he doesn't have to know now. And she she laughed, she smiled, and she's like, I can't believe you would do all this. And I said, oh, it's really, this is really, it's really just nothing. It's, 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 it's something to you. It really was not much for me to do this, you know. But if it's going to help you, I can't let you go home empty-handed, you know. And so she, uh, she, she was really, really sweet. And she apologized to the crew. I'm so sorry. And I kind of explained to them what happened, whatever. So it, it, you never really know. When people are coming on angry and mean, traveling's not fun anymore, really. For most people, it, it's it's a taking off your shoes, taking off your belts. You're getting strip searched at security. It's it's no fun, really, you know. So sometimes the first chance they have to relax is when they get to us, and this was a prime example. Turning a bad situation into something beautiful and meaningful for somebody else. 
and brightening somebody else's day. Really a beautiful message to close this interview with. Thank you very much, Don. Perhaps our listeners will leave us a suitcase full of questions for you to answer. <laughs> Would you be willing to fly back to Thoughtvolution Island and to do a follow-up interview with me if we get enough responses? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be, I'd be happy to, 100%. Yeah, anything to talk about my job? Sure. Talk about what I do on the daily? Yeah, I'm happy to answer anything. Friends, I feel so incredibly fortunate that I get to talk to fascinating people like Don and that I get to listen to their captivating stories. It's an honor, a privilege, and something like an unexpected gift handed to me by a stranger, really. Something so real and authentic. Thoughtvolution has become so much more than just a podcast to me. It's regular people like Don, Nariman, Jennifer, Dustin, Anna, and so many others creating their own legacy to bring encouragement, joy, and relatability to you. Doesn't it feel like a warm embrace when you listen to somebody just sharing and being genuine? It always puts me in a great mood. In any case, that was episode 5 of Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds please check out our website. There is so much to explore. We have an intake form in case you want to be on the show yourself. There's a merch store with hoodies, t-shirts, and hats, an episode guide, and even a bit about me. So please check it out. The website is www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. Again, that's www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. You can also call us and leave a virtual voicemail message that we may use in a follow-up episode. That number is 864-501-5033. Again, that's 864-501-5033. Of course, there is www.facebook.com slash thoughtvolution and www.instagram.com slash thoughtvolution. <laughs> and we would love for you to follow us there. Please also make sure to rate and review our podcast. It really helps us out. And tell your friends about it. Shout it from the rooftop. Put a message in a bottle and let the world know that Thoughtvolution exists, that it has touched your life, and that it is something rather special. I appreciate every single one of you so very much. You make this show possible, and you're the reason I'm doing this and my guests are doing this, so thank you. Thank you so very much. For the long week ahead of us until episode six, I would like to wish you a joyful heart, an open mind, and thoughts that continue to evolve. So no matter where you are, please do remember that you matter, that your life has meaning and purpose, and that we can all, in our small little ways, be and become the change we want to see in the world. Perhaps reach out to somebody today from your past and let them know that you're thinking of them. No matter what, do something beautiful, create something unique, and always be kind to each other. 